Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, my name's Stuart Miles and welcome to the Pocalent Podcast. This week, both MediaTek and Qualcomm have been talking up Wi-Fi 7, a new wireless standard that promises to bring a multitude of features that can be used to offer extreme speeds, higher capacity and low latency to your Wi-Fi network. But with many of us yet to embrace Wi-Fi 6 at home, what does this mean for the likes of you and me? Well, Pocalent's Luke Baker joins me to tell us more. Meanwhile, it's been 10 years since the very first smart meters rolled out in the UK, with the nation now facing huge energy price hikes and the potential of demand pricing becoming a reality. Just how successful has the rollout been and what can we expect in the future? I talked to one of the CEOs of the, one of the companies that have been involved since the start. And Pocalint's Rick Henderson has been playing with a new pair of headphones from Sony that are designed to let in external noise rather than keeping out. In a world where noise-cancelling headphones have become the norm, does a pair of headphones that focuses on the opposite really work? Well, stay tuned to find out. But first, Luke, tell us more about Wi-Fi 7. Hey, so um, yeah, Wi-Fi 7 will essentially bring much, much higher speeds, about 2.4 times faster than Wi-Fi 6, which, as you said, most of us still haven't got Wi-Fi 6 yet. Mm. Um, as well as using wider bandwidths that can deal with interference better. So in highly Wi-Fi saturated areas, you'll be able to get lower latencies and higher speeds. Um, the yeah, Wi-Fi 7 promises to bring speeds up to about 40 gigabytes, uh, gigabits per second, rather. Okay. Um, which is the same as Thunderbolt 3 over the air. So Wow. So that's pretty fast. But... Do we actually have, I, I suppose, obviously, this is all theoretical stuff at the moment. We don't necessarily have anything that would take advantage of that. Yeah. So the your ISP won't give you speeds that high, so you won't be able to access the internet at that speed. But uh, things on the local network will be able to take advantage of it. So if you think about when someone moves into a new house and they put gigabit ethernet cables all over the place and have to embed them in the walls and it costs them loads of money. Yeah. Uh, Wi-Fi 7 could make that a thing of the past, potentially. Another really interesting use case is uh, for VR and AR headsets and the ability to stream through the Wi-Fi network at Thunderbolt speeds. So you could do wireless transmission of 4K video, well, multiple streams of 4K video per eye for VR headsets. And I suppose um, this this kind of, when I first tested, like, for example, when we first tested sort of the HTC Vive and it wasn't wireless and you had this massive octopus of cables coming out the back, that kind of would negate all of that, wouldn't it? To really, and I know we're getting, we've got VR headsets like the Quest and things like that now, which are wireless, yeah. but this would kind of give you the original kind of Vive kind of, you know, as you said, 4K, both eyes, all the other stuff, but yeah. completely wireless. Yeah, exactly. So rather than something like the Quest where all the processing has to be done on board to make it wireless, um, 
you can take advantage of a massive, powerful gaming machine and have a much more high fidelity experience, but without being tethered to your table and potentially, you know, knocking into things or tripping over, uh, which was the classic VR experience. And then I suppose that kind of then takes it to the next thing, which is that if you don't have to have all the processing in the device because it just can connect wirelessly, then the devices themselves can be considerably smaller, lighter. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly. And Um, so do do you think this is something that will get to a scenario where, you know, that sounds great in the home, do you see that Wi-Fi 7 has the potential to to go beyond that experience and therefore, you know, replace 5Gs of this world? I don't think it will be able to replace 5G, but I do think there's a lot of potential for Wi-Fi Direct. So, you know, when you've got a camera that's got Wi-Fi Direct and you can transfer it to your phone, um, transfer all your photos and videos to your phone, via wi-fi that takes ages and is a real pain i I feel like most people don't use that feature for that reason but if you could implement wi-fi 7 tech in that then you could transfer gigabytes of data in a couple seconds so i think there's potential for that outside the home and when do you think we'll be in a world where wi-fi 7 is a reality so at the moment, it's not even due to be certified until 2024. But MediaTek have already demonstrated it running at full speed. So it is a real thing, and it is coming. Um, MediaTek as well said that they um, think hardware that will be compatible with Wi-Fi 7 will be shipping by the end of this year. So there's potential for, even though it's not a finalized and certified things we might start to see devices that are like wi-fi 7 ready by the end of the year and we kind of saw that with wi-fi 6 didn't we where devices started showing up before the certification as you know you kind of get you've got to get product out there because otherwise it's kind of a chicken and egg isn't it if you don't have the devices nobody will go and buy the routers and if you don't have the routers nobody will go and buy the devices yeah precisely and how do we have any idea how wi-fi 6 is getting into getting on in that sense of you know if you're listening to this and you think i haven't upgraded my router for a long time you know probably it's probably still the same one that came with the broadband provider that i've been with for a long time is there is it worth upgrading to wi-fi 6 um i would say so especially if you are in an area where you have lots of wi-fi networks and it can occasionally cause um problems with connecting to the network particularly if you have loads of smart home devices like smart bulbs and everything taking up valuable bandwidth the the wi-fi 6 um, networks can take advantage of a much wider bandwidth so you can have much more devices and uh, it can talk to them at much higher speeds than previous generations so there's still loads of benefit and um I think the adoption is is really high with Wi-Fi 6. I think it's about 50% of devices uh, in 2021 that shipped were Wi-Fi 6 enabled. So, so it's definitely worth if you've built if you bought new consumer technology, like a like a new phone or a new laptop or something like that over the last mm. year. Which let's face it, due to the the various lockdowns and working from home and hybrid models and all the other stuff, we'll probably have. It, it you really should start thinking about 
upgrading your routers or your, your your network at home to benefit from the speeds that those devices have. Yeah, definitely. I think a big part of it as well is just um, giving room for all of the many, many smart devices that we have in our homes to, to work efficiently without slowing down other devices. Still to come, Rick gives us his verdict on the Sony LinkBuds headphones. It, they're, they're designed, and this is what Sony says, to always be worn, um, whether you're listening to something or not. And for that, they're amazing because, let me tell you, they, these are the lightest, most comfortable in-ears I've ever had. Ten years ago, smart meters were hailed as the answer to several problems with monitoring our electric and gas usage in the home, removing the need for consumers to take monthly meter readings and catapult the industry into a new era of possibilities. But a fumbling start caused by technical issues has meant that the journey is far from over and way behind schedule. Some have branded smart meters as woeful, botched and bungled, while others believe that they are the keystone to the UK's green revolution. Pilgrim Biet is CEO of DevicePilot, a company that you might not have heard of, but it's been at the forefront of the smart meter rollout since the start. And with a nation now facing huge energy price hikes and the potential of demand pricing becoming a reality, I wanted to find out how the smart meter rollout was going and whether there's still hope for the technology. I started by asking Pilgrim what the situation with the smart meter rollout was at the moment. Well, in our survey, we got a lot of answers to that question, some of them very complimentary and some very non-complimentary. But I think my answer would really be there's a lot of potential still to be realized. I think we're still at slightly less than half of all meters being smart. And it's supposed the rollout's supposed to have been finished by now. So clearly there's a way to go. Um, and what do you think has, has caused that, you know, if, if it's supposed to have been done by now and, it, and, it's, and it's only halfway, what's the sort of challenges that you've kind of faced over, over the last decade? Do you think that, you know, energy companies have faced that therefore it, we haven't succeeded in, in getting everybody onto a smart meter? I think anything that rolls out en masse in the real world is going to have a lot of challenges and, and you only have to think about the places that people have their, their existing meters to, to realize why. Uh, they may not be in places that are very accessible in terms of wireless, you know, buried deep inside buildings, or often the meters are actually quite old and, and wired in quite an old way. So there's a lot of other work that needs to be done at the same time. So I think a lot of it's just that there's a, a lot of electrician hours needed to get the job done. In addition, it is or was at least a relatively new technology. And, and obviously, any new technology comes with its own, own teething problems. Mm. And it did, did take quite a long time for that to really get sorted out. We had these initial SMETS1 smart meters, which weren't possible to move from utility to utility and that caused i think quite a lot of problems but but that's all behind us now and that kind of i think that's probably one of the the sort of concerns isn't it that it's like well if i get this from british gas for example and then i move to edf or i move to octopus or whatever will that still work you know and i think do you think that's been one of the issues that people felt that they they were locked into a a, a carrier so to speak yeah, that definitely was a problem in the early days, but I think that is now well and truly resolved. So if you get a smart meter today, you, sh you certainly should not suffer from that problem. And do you think there's been, in the time that we have had, and the the kind of use of, of these, have, is, is there anything that surprised you about the data that we're currently getting out of these these devices? 
I think whenever you roll out a lot of things, you, you have to go through this curve where you, you learn as you go along and you have to drive the quality up. Because if you have a small number of connected things, then you can actually tolerate quite low performance numbers because you can go and address the problems one by one by sending out a man in a van or, or whatever. But as the numbers get bigger and bigger, you have to have higher quality. Otherwise, the, the sheer number of problems you're you're dealing with is just overwhelming. And I think it seems to me like there's still a way to go in terms of the, the level of quality of, of smart meter experience. And that's partly to do with some technical challenges still, um, but it's also to do with things like configuration, making sure they're set up correctly for the user. And do you think, do you think, obviously 10 years is a long time, and therefore do you think the sort of the needs of the house have, have changed drastically you know, we now see EVs and a more of a focus to sustainability and, and things like that. And do you think, therefore, that's all those things are helping to play into the hands of the smart meter, that it, it becomes more relevant? I absolutely do. I think the actually over the last 10 years, there hasn't been that much change within households, but I think there's enormous change coming over the next 10 years. And, and that's why now it really is the time when smart meters will come into their own. Historically, Perhaps one of the things they'd be most useful for is simply reading your meter, which has a benefit to the utility and a bit of a benefit to you, but, but a relatively small benefit. Mm. But I think the kinds of benefits that will come from smart meters in the next 10 years will, will be much, much bigger because they'll play a key part in things like EVs and possibly heat pumps and other smart energy devices that will come into many people's lives in the next 10 years. And I suppose that's one of the concerns many people uh, seem to have is that is what do they do? And apart from, as you said, apart from delivering that, you know, here's my meter reading to to the gas company or the electric company that I, this is what's happening. There is a sense of, 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 of well, it tells me I'm using lots of lots of energy at the moment. But like, what am I supposed to do with that? How do I how do I enact in that? Do you think do you think that's perhaps been one of the failings, or do you think we're starting to get to a position where rather than you just running around turning on a kettle to see what happens to the smart meter or you know turning a light switch, it kind of it it, it will change change the way we use electricity and, and energy in our home. Yeah, I think with static pricing for electricity, the the value of a smart meter is relatively small. But as the price goes dynamic, which it is now um, for, for a number of reasons, then smart meters become, you know, they really come into their own. So we're going to see time of use becoming quite common now. So if you have an EV, you almost certainly want to be on a time of use tariff. So you're paying perhaps a third of the price at nighttime to, to charge your car. That's that's still static time of use. So you know that between certain hours, it will be a much cheap, cheaper tariff. It's a little bit like the economy seven that people with storage radiators are so used to for, for decades. But then it goes beyond that to dynamic time of use pricing. And already we've seen some experimental tariffs from um, utilities like bulb, like um, Octopus, um, and, yeah. and I think bulb, um, where where they're actually altering the the pricing dynamically to reflect that the cost of electricity on the grid, which itself varies enormously, and, and once you get that kind of situation, then then you really do need a smart meter to track how much you have paid for every half hour over the last month or, or whatever. So, uh, you know, the, the the kind of intelligence and the time-based nature of a smart meter becomes essential. Now, you've been around in this industry, I hope you don't mind me saying that, for, for quite some time. Um, first launching Alert Me, which was kind of all about sensors in the home, and then moving on to, which then became Hive. How do you feel the smart home has changed over the last 
decade or so and, and do you think it's going in the right direction and, and do you feel we've sort of load lots of questions at you at once do you, do you feel it's kind of it, it's still moving with the same excitement and pace or is it kind of slowed down the funny thing is if you get involved in an early market then you usually simultaneously feel very excited and very frustrated because on the one hand if you look at the last 10 years in, in the smart home although there has obviously been a lot of progress and in particular the arrival of the big players like google uh, and uh, amazon and, and apple into the home um, that that has definitely had an effect. You know, there's lots of Nest thermostats and, and so on out there. Um, those are still quite sort of point solutions, aren't they? They each uh, exist on their own. And although all these players clearly have a game plan around creating a sort of hub in the home and, and talking to other devices, I would say it's only really the enthusiastic early adopters, you know, the gadget freaks, people like me, um, <laughs> that, that really are making the smart home smart by connecting other things. And for normal people, it's still really complicated. There's not nearly enough interoperability. And, and that actually makes it very hard to make your home smart. Uh, especially if you think about how our energy devices in the past have worked, you know, thermostats and things like light switches, they're incredibly simple and um, most people know how to use them. And and going from that to a world where you've got to use your smartphone to understand what's going on and to configure things and it might not be clear why something's turning off, you know, is it your Google Hub deciding that it's playing a routine or, or whatever, you know, it can, it can potentially be very, very complicated. So what we discovered at, at AlertMe was as we went from the early adopters who will tolerate a lot of complexity in order to get the WYSI features into the mainstream, mainstream customers do not have the time or attention or, or interest really yeah. to, to spend in all that kind of fiddling about and configuration. They need stuff that just works out of the box and, it, and it's incredibly reliable. And I think we, we are still not there with, with the smart home. So I think it's two things. It's making it really reliable, but it's also making it joined up. So so all these different smart devices can start to interact. And one of the things I'll be interacting with is the smart meter. You know, your, your washer or your dryer or your heating or other things could be much more intelligent about how they use energy if they could talk to the smart meter and understand about pricing or go via the internet. I mean, it doesn't have to be uh, local to the smart meter, but... Um, you know, joining things up allows them to, to be intelligent and to make your life um, more simple. Now, with the new, um, it's matter, isn't it, which is the mm. and thread, do you think that that has the capability to be able to take some of that data and, and, and usage and, and, and join the dots? Or do you think it's still very early days? Yes, it definitely has that potential, but we thought that 10 or 15 years ago with Zigbee. Uh, so it has been a very, very long time coming. And and in many ways, what Matter does is not rocket science. I mean, it could have been done a long time ago, but I suppose you need all that kind of pressure from all the different users, um, the, the big players like Google and so on, uh, who, who are just keen to get the sort of ecosystem benefits of being able to attach lots of devices uh, to their networks and not just attach them, but actually understand what they are once they're attached. So I think that's something that always interests me about these, these standards for connectivity. Mm. Actually, just connecting something from A to B as though it's a piece of wire, well, that's not that hard. But it's the higher layers of connectivity so that you actually understand what's connected. You know, if I if I bring a new thermostat that's built by some no-name company in China and I put it in my smart home, my home hub, maybe my Google or Amazon or, or Apple home hub, sure. should understand what that 
what that thermostat is um, without having to have any sort of magic knowledge. What is this thing? What can it do? What should I tell it? What does it need to know from me? So those higher levels are the, are the challenge. And looking forward to the future, sort of, you know, having seen back the last 10 years, I presume 10 years ago, if we had this conversation, we were like, yeah, 10 years, everybody have a smart meter, it's done. Do you, do you think we'll be that, you'll be able to claim that in, in 10 years time? Or do you think we're in a kind of, now it's it's feeling like there's a bit of a hockey stick momentum and it, it's going to catch on a bit faster? Yeah, I think meter installs have accelerated hugely recently and, and there's a real drive now because there are so many reasons to, to do it now. Um, so I think I think we will see pretty much all homes having smart meters by um, uh, you know by the end of the next ten years, even by the next of, uh, by the next five years actually I think I think most homes will have them, but it's only one part of a much bigger story obviously around um, sort of sustainability, and I think there'll be lots of other stuff going on in parallel, um, but but I think smart meters will be a key part of the story. Okay, so let's say uh, you've got a smart meter, the data's working correctly, you're in a future where your EV's, t- your EV's charging at the right time and your, uh, your washing machine is saying you should probably hold off another 20 minutes to get better electricity. Do you, do you see that happening or is, it all, is, that, is that too rosy a picture to paint? I think that's a great goal to aim for. <laughs> I, I think the, the reality, as we all know, is that if each of these devices on its own is somewhat unreliable, and difficult to configure right and and so on then the combination of all these devices could be a real dystopia and that's really one of the reasons that we started device pilot i think it's really important to get the the service quality the 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 amount of time that any device spends actually working really really high for the end user so that stuff just works like the the light switches and other devices that we're familiar with and then the result of all of these things working together will be really good Headphones today come in all shapes and sizes. However, they all share something in common. They're designed to block the outside world out so you can concentrate on listening and enjoying your music. The Sony Link Buds, however, take the opposite approach. These headphones from the Japanese electronics giant are designed to let external noises in, so the wearer is constantly aware of their surroundings instead. Pogolins Rick Henderson has been wearing them to find out whether the idea is likely to catch on and is here to tell us how he's been getting on with them. So, Rick, what do they like to listen to? Well, they are very odd, let's put it that way. You know, it's a very new concept. Um, they're quite unique. Um, the, they're tiny. They fit in the ear perfectly. They're very comfortable. Um, but you asked what they like to listen to, and that's a double-edged sword. Mm. Now, let me let me start by telling you what the Link Buds are really for right they're not designed to uh, wear when you're commuting on a train not necessarily because they come with no um specific ear tip so you don't put them in your ear canal they just kind of rest on your ears or sort right. of like in in the sort of like the lobes um they have a little sort of like a, a little plastic thing that connects into the top of your ear so they do stay in really well but there's the actual driver the part that that projects sound into your ear is a is what they call an open ring driver which means it looks like a polo mint okay uh, and on that polo mint it's getting weirder and weirder by the by the moment <laughs> every time you carry on going yeah there are lots of little tiny holes and of course that's where the sound projects from 
um, and it projects into your ear. But because there's a hole in the middle, you also can hear your surroundings perfectly well. Now, they, you know, most headphones now have active noise cancellation, yeah. which is designed to stop any external noises. But these do have an uh, adaptive noise, uh, sorry, adaptive volume control, so that when the external noise is too much, then the volume will automatically go up. And that is really cool. However, I found in practice um, there's a limit to that. Um, so, I was I, I've tested them in both a taxi and on the tube, and in both situations, certain things could not be or were not audible. I mean, I presume on the tube they're just it's just a, it's a no go. The tube, they don't, you know, the London Underground is a no go anyway. This sounds to me very similar to a lot of what a lot of ANC headphones offer, which is kind of like a transparency mode. You know whether it's the Bose Quiet, the Bose Quiet Comforts, where you, where you, you know, you like the the air hostess is talking to you, and you tap the side, don't you, and you can hear what they're saying, and the AirPods have a transparency mode, so you can, you know, hear people if you need to. It, why not just go down that route? I've always found transparency mode myself a little bit hit and miss. Um, I've worn them on, I've worn my headphones on planes before and tried to listen to what the hostess, and ended up just having to take the headphones off or take them out of my ears. Um, but uh, and transparency mode is obviously an option on certain things. These, you can genuinely hear what's outside without having to take them off. And the idea behind them is that you never have to take them off. They're not really designed for um, long for playing music when you're in a busy circumstance. They're more designed for home working, which is obviously a massive thing at the moment. Mm. Imagine you're on a Zoom call, you um, but the doorbell rings. If you're using ANC headphones or over-ear headphones, you might not actually hear it. Um, with these, you can clearly hear a Zoom call and you can hear the external noise around you so if you've got kids you can hear them fighting in the background mm. um but you can actually you know it's it they're it, they're they're designed and this is what sonny says to always be worn um whether you're listening to something or not and for that they're amazing because let me tell you they, these are the lightest most comfortable in-ears i've ever had and that was that was going to be my question is if they're designed to wear all the time are they comfortable that's the thing. Um, you you actually, once you've put them in and about 10 minutes later, you forget you've even got them on. They're really, really light. And, of course, because they're not obstructing any noise, then you can just go about your daily life as per normal. They're really, really comfy. Um, the other thing about them is that the music playback performance is actually really good. Now, the thing is, Sony makes one of the best pairs of true wireless headphones out mm. there anyway, the WF-1000 XM4s. And a lot of the technology they've used in those, they now use in the Link Buds as well. So it's the same um, V1 processor. It's the same uh, DSEE upscaling technology for uh, low bitrate music. Um, so the actual playback is, is really good. It's just that, you know, they are horses for courses. You you have to wear them in certain circumstances. Another good example of where to wear them, if you're out running, um, obviously you want to hear if there's traffic yeah. or or people sort of like stalking you behind you or coming up behind you. Um, you want to hear your surroundings. So they're really good for that. And music is definitely the best example as well as video calling 
One problem I did have is sitting in not even the noisy circumstance trying to watch a Netflix show. They weren't great for that. Right. And so dialogue didn't punch through that well. So if you listen to Radio 4 in the UK or you kind of, uh, you know, public service radio somewhere else, then that's not necessarily, these aren't going to be super great for those. But you'd have to listen to it at quite high volumes, really. So, okay. So here's the question then. Are they, are they too radical enough that they won't catch on? Or do you think within a couple of years, this is what everybody's going to be wearing? Uh, they, it, won't, it won't be what everyone's wearing. But it's a nice alternative. Um, there's another good example, and this is um, my wife finds it hard to find earbuds that will stay in her ears. She's got really small ears, and she's um, and also she gets slight pain in the ear canals when wearing earbuds. So uh, these would be perfect for someone like that because they just sit in there and they're very very comfortable. And if all you care about is music, it really doesn't matter. You know, if you're just even even on the tube, you could hear music. Mm. You just couldn't hear sort of like real sharp definition. So it was not great for dialogue. Um, so I can see a niche market for them. Certainly, can I see them be taking over from conventional earbuds? No, especially with um, TWS earbuds getting smaller and and managing to shrink down with each generation anyway. Well, that's it for this week's show. Thanks for listening. Until next time, pip pip. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.